Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. There is just so much life on Earth. All the bats, all the rats, all the flowering plants, all the trees, all the fungi lurking in the underground. Taken together, this is the real inheritance of the residents of this planet. A history of biological innovation preserved in these genomes. As we lose ever more biodiversity, the Earth Biogenome Project is attempting to sequence the genes of 1.8 million species. It's wildly ambitious and only recently even thinkable given the advances in biotechnology. We talk about the project, California's contribution, and the ethical considerations at play. That's all coming up next, right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. If you want to sequence the genomes of every known plant, animal, and fungus on Earth, you got to start somewhere, right? The Earth Biogenome Project has sequenced about 1,800 different species from across the tree of life. The eukaryotes, at least, which, if you recall, are cells that contain a nucleus, so sorry, bacteria. By 2025, according to a New New Yorker article on the project, this network of genomic researchers hope to reach 9,000 species. By 2029, they want to have sequenced one of every genus, so that's 180,000 genomes. And a decade from now, they hope to have gotten to 1.8 million species. We're a far cry from the Human Genome Project days in which a single reference genome took billions of dollars in many years. And yet, 1.8 million genomes is a lot. This is a wildly ambitious effort, and I can't wait to talk about it with our panel. First up, we're joined by Matthew Hudson, contributing writer at The New Yorker. His article, The Race to Save the World's DNA, is in the current issue. Welcome, Matthew. Thanks for having me. We're also joined by Harris Lewin, chair of the Earth Biogenome Project Working Group, professor of evolution and ecology at UC Davis. Welcome. Yes, good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Um, Matthew, let's... uh, start with you. I mean, we're going to get into a lot of the details and ethical issues, indigenous rights, California's particular role. But first, let's just try and bring the the big project uh, into focus. It's kind of hard to wrap your head around. Can you just describe 
what the project is trying to do and how much bigger it is than sort of previous efforts to do this kind of thing. Yeah, so the basic idea is to have one, at least one high quality genome sequenced for each species, uh, each eukaryotic species, which covers plants, animals, um, fungi, and, and some other things. Um, and it's this, this massive effort that brings together lots of different networks around the world, existing projects, um, and involves science, technology, there's the the sampling, the sequencing, the the collecting of animals and, and plants and, and species from around the world. Um, and then also involves lots of you know, computational issues and then legal and ethical issues. Mm -hmm. So it's this fascinating, multifaceted global project. Yeah. I mean, you got to actually spend some time with scientists who are out there in the world collecting these species. Tell like what was that like? What'd you what'd you see? So I didn't get to spend time with people in the field. I, I visited um, a couple of labs at Rockefeller. Um, uh, one where they're sort of doing experiments with with animals to try to understand vocal learning um, in birds, and then um, a lab where they're they are you know, doing the sequencing of uh, of samples from Rockefeller and from other people around the world. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so it was sort of seeing interesting seeing the kind of the the well-oiled machinery of all these people with different various different um, types of expertise coming together um just the process of sequencing involves many many stages um in both sort of wet lab work and then um using different kinds of algorithms to piece together the the data yeah um Harris Lewin this is a immense project do you see it as like one big thing, like, you know, the James Webb Space Telescope or something, you know, one of these other examples of big science, or do you think of it in some other way? Yeah, as Matt mentioned, we're a coordinated network of networks of individual projects. You'll hear about one of those projects from Brad today that's uh, based in California. Uh, the purpose of the the organization that that I chair is to develop the standards across all the different areas for the project so that when we get to the end of the project we have uh, you know a series of sequences that can be can be compared and that we can gain knowledge uh, uh, from so that we can solve the problems uh, uh, that we're we're that are facing the world yeah. today when you say standards like what what do you mean by that uh, standards for uh, everything from the collection, how the samples have collected, what kind of metadata are collected, uh, to the processing, how you extract the DNA from this wide variety of organisms, to the sequencing standards, what level uh, of quality does the assembly need to meet to, be, uh, to meet the Earth Biogenome Project reference quality standard, all the way through. Uh, to the end, to analysis and to uh, publication of the results. How would you compare this to, you know, the Human Genome Project on one hand and like the Encyclopedia of Life, you know, on, on the other? Yeah, well, the Human Genome Project was the, the, the granddaddy, but we've come so far uh, since 2003 when the draft of the human genome has been published in terms of the technologies that we use for sequencing uh, to the pro uh, processes we use for assembly and for mining of the data. Uh, just as, a, as, as an example uh, that we have often given, 
the cost of sequencing the human genome in in today's dollars is approaching six billion. It was three billion back in nineteen in the nineteen nineties, and uh, today we can sequence all of those one point eight million eukaryotic species for less than the cost of sequencing the human mm -hmm. genome. We're talking about the Earth Biogenome Project, which aims to sequence the genomes of every plant, animal, and fungus on Earth, all the eukaryotic species. We're joined by Harris Lewin, chair of the Earth Biogenome Project Working Group. He's a professor of evolution and ecology at the University of California, Davis. Also joined by Matt Hudson, contributing writer at The New Yorker that wrote a new uh, essay about this project called The Race to Save the World's DNA. It's in the current issue of the magazine. We'd love to hear from you. I mean, what are your questions about the effort to sequence a genome of most every living thing on Earth? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can email forum at kqed.org or find us on Twitter, you can find us on Instagram, you can find us on Discord, we're KQED Forum all over the place. Um, Harris, I wanted to ask you how much of this project's success is dependent on the continuing rapid pace of improvement in genetic sequencing and, and also you know, the, the falling cost there? Well, the astounding thing is that we already have the technology to do it. Um, there's no no really no in improvements in terms of the technology. What we need is um, some greater cost efficiency. But even at today's cost, uh, we can do, as I mentioned, we can still uh, complete the the task at less than the cost of the human genome project. Mm -hmm. uh, the challenges that we have uh, are not on the sequencing and even as much on the computational side as it is on the sample, acquisition collection side hmm. uh, actually collecting identifying vouchering storing correctly taxonomically identifying that's the key for 1.8 million species when many of those species only a single individual has uh can identify that species and that person may may be may be dead <laughs> uh, uh -huh. this is the 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 greatest challenge uh, that we have today and um, the Earth Biogenome Project is is really organizing itself uh, to 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 promote the ethical collection of samples from around the world. Uh, phase two will involve the collection of 300,000 samples so that we can sequence 150,000 species in four years. That's tenfold greater than um, than what we're doing in phase one in the first three years. Yeah. It's interesting as we uh, start to talk about the ethical issues. I wanted to bring in another guest. Sadie Paez is the chair of the Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Committee for the Earth Biogenome Project and also works on the Vertebrate uh, Genome Project at the Rockefeller University. Welcome. Hola. Thank you so much for having me. Hello, yeah. everyone. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. So, um, you know, Harris kind of mentioned that there are issues with sort of doing this ethically. Like what's the framework that you all are trying to set up to do this the right way? It is, it's, it's a it's a big um, aspect of how complicated and complex this project is, which also makes it amazing 
the audaciousness of the mission that we are pursuing. And so when we're thinking about the technical aspects, as Harris was talking about, the sequencing, the technology part of the sequencing has moved along and that's progressing. And really the bottlenecks are going to be in how we think about the people infrastructure with things such as the sampling and the collection of these species. And so one of the things, oh, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Go. You were saying like, yeah. when you yeah. say, you know, that infrastructure and the, and the sampling, you mean like making sure that, you know, when you're taking a specimen from someplace in Peru, that you're doing it the right, doing right by the people who live there. Exactly. And so we are, the Earth Biogenome Project is a network of networks, essentially of scientists, right? And so we function within a frame of thinking that more similarly aligns, right? Scientists tend to think more similarly than, say, our mothers might or our people out in the community. But really, when we're thinking about the Earth Biogenome Project and science in general, it impacts everyone. And there's different ways of thinking and approaching this work that we want to be considerate of. How do we bring others into it? So you gave an example of perhaps some species in Peru. And we think about Um, specific species, for example, endemic species that are only found in one region. So if there's species that are specific to a region of Peru, how are we as a project going to pursue partnering with that community to involve them in a project in a way that is also of value to them? For us, we know and we've defined some really incredible values for both science and for humanity. But communities may not necessarily have the same perspective and thinking what a value is. For example, we as scientists think about publications. To other communities, that may hold very little value to them. And so we want to be really intentional about how we partner with communities, giving them time to build respectful and trusting relationships Mm. so that everyone is involved in it, right? So when we think about the value, what does that mean to everybody? And how do we ensure that we are doing our part to be ethical, about that approach. Yeah. We're talking about the Earth Biogenome Project, which aims to sequence the genomes of 1.8 million species. We're joined by Sadie Paez, who's the chair of the Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Committee of the Earth Biogenome Project and works on one of the components at the Rockefeller University. Also joined by Harris Lewin, chair of the Earth Biogenome Project Working Group, professor at UC Davis, and Matt Hudson, a contributing writer at The New Yorker, whose article, The Race to Save the World's DNA, inspired this show. We would love to hear your questions for these scientists. The number is 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We'll be right back. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the Earth Biogenome Project, which aims to sequence so many genomes of life here on Earth, one of every known species. We're joined by Matthew Hudson, contributing writer at The New Yorker, Harris Lewin, chair of the Earth Biogenome Project Working Group and a professor at UC Davis, uh, Sadie Paez, chair of the Justice, Equity, Diversion, and Inclusion Committee at the Earth Biogenome Project. Um, Harris, I wanted to uh, bounce um, one of our listener questions to you, and I, and I love this. A listener asks, uh, Alexis understands this stuff, but many of us do not. Could the guest briefly explain what a genome is and why it's important to collect them? Yeah, great. So a genome is a collection of all the genes uh, of, an, of an organism that are uh, placed on all of the chromosomes of that species. And the genome is typically compartmentalized on those chromosomes in the nucleus of a of a eukaryotic cell. So it's all the genes, all the regulatory elements, all of the uh, genetic components that make up uh, all of the entire genetic material of an organism. Yeah. You know, and just to add on to that, how has what we think of as a genome changed as we've learned more about you know, uh, these genetic systems? Yeah, that's a, another, another great question. Um, well, uh, you know, in the beginning, we first thought of a genome as a collection of genes. That's the, the, um, the parts of the genome that encode proteins, and the proteins are what, you know, do the work of the cell. Today, we have a very much more sophisticated view of what the genome is. That also includes lots of non-coding DNA. In fact, in many species, that's more than 95% of the DNA does not code for protein. And embedded within those regions are the parts of the genome that switch the genes, the expression of uh, RNA eventually that gets uh, translated into the proteins, the switches that turn the genes on and off. So that's another component. And another layer are the epigenetic changes that occur. We call them epigenetic, another kind of fancy term. But those are parts of the genome that are not encoded in the genome that are chemically added to the basis of the DNA that help to modify the expression of the genes. And, and that collectively, plus other components. I won't talk about mitochondrial DNA and so on, but there are other <laughs> components of the of the genome. But that's basically what makes up a genome and um, and how we've our view of it has changed in, in the last decade or more. And this kind of gets at the why of this project. What is assembling all of these genomes from across, you know, kind of the way you want to do it across the whole tree of life, you know, going down to the genus level and then going down to the species level eventually? Like, what do you, what will we learn about genomes by doing it in that way? Well, the, the first and easiest example to cite is it gives us a picture of the origin and evolution of the history of life on Earth. And just like, you know, when we, we talk about the Webb telescope giving us the origin and evolution of the universe, 
the sequences of all of eukaryotic life that we've identified uh, today give us that picture of the relationships of all eukaryotic uh, organisms on the planet. That's just the basic, that's the foundation on which all of the new biology uh, will be conducted. I thought um, I might um, add something. Oh, yeah, sure. The, Go ahead. Um, the, the previous listener had the question about why, like, why do we want to sequence all of these genomes? And um, from talking to, with Harris and, and other people on the project, um, three main reasons came up. They might be called science, conservation, and engineering. So the science is just understanding life, like the origins of life and how various species diverge from each other, how they reproduce, what are the differences, um, what roles do different genes play in the function of an organism. And then the conservation aspect, the better that we understand all of these species, um, the better we can understand how they adapt to a changing environment, um, the better we can understand um, ecosystems and how best to, to protect them or to uh, avoid further extinctions. And then the, and the engineering aspect, you can look at evolution as kind of this giant experiment or collection of experiments. There's a lot of trial and error. There's a lot of mutation and random mixing of genes together. Some things work, some things don't. Um, species survive, species don't survive. Mm -hmm. um, and you can kind of look at the output and, and the outcomes and, and see you know, which kinds of solutions to various problems work the best. There are problems of survival, problems of reproduction, problems of, of, uh, of mating or competition or, or um, you know, finding resources. And evolution kind of randomly comes up with all of these different solutions. And you can kind of see how, how nature has solved these problems. And we might find inspiration from that if we want to solve some of our own problems. There might be medicines. There might be cures for cancer. There might be um, ideas for engineering. Heat or drought tolerance or things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Or engineering new kinds of materials. We can look at seashells or, or things like that. Uh, or, or spider silk can come up with new kinds of tough materials uh so those are kind of the the three main themes for for why for, that sort of motivate this project yeah thank you so much for that. that was matt uh hudson contributing writer at the new yorker whose article the race to save the world's dna is in the current issue and inspired the show um wanted to add um brad schaefer director of the ucla lacrette center for california conservation scientists uh science professor in the department of ecology and evolutionary biology welcome Thanks. Thanks for having me. So good to have you. So you're running the California node of this project, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, as as Harris said, the the EBP is a is a collection of projects, and our project, the California Conservation Genomics Project, or CCGP, we're all into our acronyms, <laughs> um, is uh, is one that is. Um, has similarities to the EBP. It certainly is a is a I would like to say a major node of the EBP, um, but it also has its own mission. And um, as as Matt said, if you take his first two uh, categories, which are science and conservation, the CCGP that uh, um, that conservation part of it is our major theme, and so we really emphasize conservation and using genomics for applied real-world conservation issues in the state of California. 
and we are funded by the state of California. And we have 77 researchers across all 10 UC campuses, University of California, that is campuses, um, who have a combined, very focused mission on using genomics to try to solve some of our most pressing conservation issues in California. And at least as I understand your project, right, you're doing more more individuals, right, um, per species, right? You're not just doing one, you're doing like a bunch. That's that's correct. So um, when, you know, as, as Harris said, um, the the EBP with its mission of trying, of, of sequencing one individual per species, it, it's creating a framework. It's creating a sort of backbone of the history of the tree of life of you know, how we evolved from presumably a single species um, a very, very long time ago to the 1.8 million described eukaryotes and a lot of undescribed ones that have evolved during, over that time. And, and that provides a, it provides a framework, it provides a background. Um, much of conservation is aimed at understanding not just a species, not, not just understanding say the genome and genetic architecture of a redwood tree, but understanding how that varies across the landscape where the species lives. So there might be there might be regions of a species range where species have particular adaptations to hot, you know, temper high temperatures or low temperatures or high elevations. Mm-hmm. There might be regions where a species has really been hammered by human activities or other uh, other sort of environmental insults. And so the genetic variation found there is very low. The species is very inbred and in trouble. Um, other regions where it's genetically very healthy. And understanding that variation across the landscape is, is really the heart and soul of mm-hmm. conservation biology. It's, it's trying to understand where within the range of a species we need to to um, focus our energy, focus our resources on trying to save some areas, sometimes by moving organisms around from place to place, that's called assisted migration. That might mean you take genetically healthy individuals from one region and move them into a genetically depauperate area. And, And to do that, we need to understand individuals across a landscape. And that's what we're doing with the CCGP. Yeah. You know, Harris, uh, I think I'm going to come to you on this one. Rose uh, on our Discord writes in to say, I'd love to know how these folks grapple with the balance between collection projects and conservation. When it comes to rare species, how do you think about spending resources, time, money, attention, political pressure to preserve their DNA versus spending the resources trying to keep them from going extinct in the first place? Yeah, great question. I think Brad can also... (laughs) talk about this because this is one we we grapple with uh all the time uh and uh there there are many issues around which species uh you collect first uh and if you collect uh, a particular species um you know and it's one of the last ones on the planet you know what do you do do you collect the last mosquito mm-hmm. of a certain type and and that's the end of the mosquito there there are lots of ethical issues around the collection uh, uh, of materials from endangered species and and many of those um, many of those 
regulations and rules fall under federal federal law as well. There are certain things you can do, certain things you cannot do. You need there's permitting and such, and and um, and then there's an entire global framework as well called CITES around permitting and collection of samples. Um, and and so uh, you know what people prioritize depends on what their scientific objectives are. Brad has prioritized 150 species in California to produce a reference genome because those are the species that are under direct threat uh, of extinction in California. Uh, others may be targeting species for other reasons, for the bioeconomy. Some are looking at large numbers of yeast species to try and understand important uh, metabolic pathways. This is what Matt uh, alluded to as well. So I think Matt used the term, uh, 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 or, or a similar term, is the EBP is really the infrastructure. It becomes an infrastructure for mm. the future of biology in which there are many different applications. And um, conservation is, is, is certainly one of them. And that, that creates a whole set of uh, problems that uh, many of the other uh, projects uh, do not face. So I, I think Brad may have some very useful insights into this as well, as well as Sadie. Yeah, Let, let's hear, uh, Sadie, I'd be, I'd be curious to hear your perspective and then we'll, and then we'll wrap to Brad. Okay. Yeah, no, thank you so much. Um, Harris brought up a really good point about there's CITES and other principles that we as scientists have to follow when we're thinking about how we do our science in terms of, let's say for samples, transporting them from one country to another. That's one perspective. We then have other collaborators, so indigenous and other worldview perspectives that think very differently about species. And so when we're thinking about the example of maybe it's the last the last uh, mosquito of a certain species that we're trying to save for a certain group, let's say if they have sovereignty over that species, they may think about that very differently and sampling that and to then use it to create a genome may not be something that they're interested in doing. Mm. For an example, indigenous worldviews, not all, but many of them have more of a kinship relationship with species, which means they see them as relatives. They see them as family. And so we have to approach this really differently than perhaps other species that we might approach that may not have the same relationship from one community to another. Yeah. And how how are you actually settling those uh, perspective disputes, at least? Very carefully. <laughs> Is it just kind of like one by one, like working with each, you know, kind of individual community and trying to understand, you know, th that particular network of researchers in that particular place? Like, I know there's like a, a contingent that's doing like um, African scientists doing African sequencing, like they would deal individually with, with each kind of... Uh, perspective entity. Yeah. So Matt earlier brought up, there's three, three reasons for why we're doing the Earth Biogenome Project, among others, but he highlighted science, conservation, and engineering, right, Matt? I think that's what you mm -hmm. had it about. I want to just turn that for a moment and, and just bring to the table. Those are three ways that we can think about the value of nature or biodiversity. But we can also think about the value of nature and biodiversity simply for its beauty, simply just to look. And when we start thinking about the many ways that people think about nature, 
we begin to recognize that there's lots of different perspectives and what we call interested parties. So we as scientists as one, government is another, policymakers, um, regular people, indigenous communities, lots of people not only benefit from nature, but also have a different perspective and how they might value it, what they might want to pull out of it. Some of it might be bioengineering. And so for the EBP, we try to think about how do we set up systems and processes for partnering with communities? And it is largely individualized. There's no one set, mm -hmm. one set framework. We really try to think about all of our different partners and how do we have these conversations. Africa Biogenome Project is an example that with the Vertebra Genome Project, we have been working closely with them for the past couple of years to sequence several species. And it's taken quite a while in part because we are doing it with them. We don't want to do it for them, right? We don't want them just to send us the samples. We do it and then give them information back. We want to think about how do we build capacity with them so that they are actively participating in developing the questions, collecting the samples, setting up their own spaces, how they might want to interpret it and analyze it. So they are involved from the very beginning to the very end. It is a collaborative project and not just we are EBP and everyone sends things to us. It is all of us involved together, which means it's going to take time. It's like you're you know, Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm also so curious, you know, you all uh, are, are bringing basically this open data framework that, you know, got established in a lot of molecular biology of like publishing these things. Um, has that generally speaking been well received across all the different kinds of groups that you interact with? There's differences. So this concept of open data is even fairly new. It's with the um, Human Genome Project that Harris was speaking about earlier. It really came about from that project with the Bermuda Principles, where it was announced that genomic data would be shared within 24 hours of its generation. Mm -hmm. And before that, genomic data was not shared until after publication. So even mm -hmm. within our field, that's changed within the past few decades. And so this idea of open science for us in the Western scientific enterprise, this is very appealing. This is something that we want to do. And certainly with the pandemic, we saw how it accelerated um, our ability to develop vaccines. However, it's been problematic because certain geographical regions that heavily contributed data were then not receiving the benefits mm. of that that they developed. And that's where this you know, components of justice and equity, diversity and inclusion really come in as thinking about that. Yeah. Sadie Pius, chair of the Justice, Equity, Diversity and Inclusion Committee for the Earth Biogenome Project. We're talking with a bunch of people who are working on the project and Matt Hudson from The New Yorker who wrote about it. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We'll be back with more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the Earth Biogenome Project. Matt Hudson, a contributing writer at The New Yorker, wrote about it in his story, The Race to Save the World's DNA. It's in the current issue. Harris Lewin is chair of the Earth Biogenome Project Executive Committee, a professor uh, at UC Davis. Brad Schaefer is director of the UCLA Lacrette Center for California Conservation Science and a professor uh, in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, and Sadie Pius is chair of the Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Committee for the Earth Biogenome Project and works on a component of the project at the Rockefeller University. Um, I want to bring in some calls. We have some great questions um, for you all. Tony in Pleasanton, you're back. Welcome. Good morning. Um, I'm a retired fishery biologist. Well, I'm not really retired. I still work on contract. And my question is, how do you go about selecting a representative specimen? And I think you've touched on this topic, but let me uh, divulge into my fisheries background. And in California, uh, I've worked with salmonids from uh, the northern end of the state through the Sacramento-San Joaquin Valley. Now, among these, uh, say for rainbow trout, they, they appear fairly homogenous, and that the reason is is because historically, Kamloops rainbow trout have been outplanted, kind of like the Johnny Appleseed of the trout world. And if you go to collect a representative sample, it may be a sample that consists of an introduced uh, stock uh-huh. uh, rather than native stock. So how do you go about discriminating the perfect or the ideal specimen say, to represent a geographical area as large as California in the context of these historical outplanning events, you know, where do you get your ideal specimen from with those kinds of backgrounds involved? Tony, such a good question. Um, Brad Schaefer, this one is uh, is for you. Okay. Um, Great question, Tony. And I think the first answer is, Tony, and I'm sure you know this better than most people, there is no ideal specimen. There is no perfect specimen, right? Um, now, there are better ones and worse ones. And clearly, you know, a trout that that came from a hatchery is probably not as good a representative individual as one that has always been part of a wild stock. Um, for us, with the California Conservation Genomics Project, which is very relevant, um, we have salmonids in our project. Um, there, there's there's really two answers to that. The first is that there's a reason why we have 77 
um, faculty members from all 10 UC campuses working on this. And that's because, you know, we have Carlos Garza, who's um, who's a Salmonid expert, and he picked the reference genome that we we're using uh, for his species of Salmonid. So he knows the animals, he knows he's worked on them for years, um, he knows a native stock and can provide us with a good, a good individual. Uh, the second is exactly to your point, Tony, is why, at least in our case, we're taking our conservation effort one step further than the single individual for the EBP. And we're sequencing 150 individuals of that species of Salmonid from all across the state. And that allows us to do things at the genomic level, like understand what's the influence of hatchery fish and native fish. How do those genomes work together? What kind of adaptations do we see? So by, by expanding from that foundation of the EBP that we're all working on, mm -hmm. we can address some of those issues that you're concerned with. Yeah. Harris, how many of the projects within this network of networks are doing multiple, you know, individual genomes for the same species, but just contributing one reference to the, you know, to the big database? Yeah, there, uh, there are now uh, two more were added this week, big ones uh, dealing with ocean genomes. We now have uh, 54 uh, different projects, and of those, uh, more than more than half are directly contributing uh, directly contributing genomes. Uh, the others are involved in collections, and um, probably I would say of those that are generating genomes, about a half of those are are doing multiple individuals from the same species, and. Um, both Brad and Matt alluded to an in, important point, and it's raised by Tony's question, is how do you capture the genetic variation mm -hmm. of an individual species so that you could use that information to improve conservation efforts? Now, the Human Genome Project has a, a wonderful example, an ongoing example of this right now. It's called the Human Pan Genome Project, which is uh, a project which attempts to capture all genetic variations completely consistent with Brad's idea that there's no perfect genome that represents a, an individual species. So you have one really good reference, and then you can, you can look at the variation of all other genomes and then get a complete picture of the variation, uh, genomic variation uh, across an entire uh, population or even an, an entire species if you've been able to sample enough populations. And um, there are more and more projects within the Earth Biogenome Project that are that are doing this. Uh, I would say there's probably, you know, a dozen of them now that are trying to capture variation for species that they are uh, sequencing now, including yeah. Brad. Yeah, let's, uh, let's bring in Hart in Santa Rosa. Welcome, Hart. Hey, how's it going? Hey, good. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, so um, uh, my main question is, uh, it's pretty easy to actually generate all this data, but what's the plan for actually going through and analyzing? I know um, bioinformatics is, is particularly resource intensive. Uh, what, what's the plan in that, in that realm? 
Yeah, it's a really it's a good question. I mean, Harris, I assume that each different component has its own sense of uh, doing their own type of analysis. You know, Brad's group is doing what it's doing and other groups around are doing it. But is there, are there research projects that are going to run over the top of everything? Let's just ask that specific question. Yeah, so that that is a multi-component uh, question uh, from from Hart, and uh, you know, at, at the first level, you know, there's the the sequencing and assembly, and we have standardized the processes for for doing that. Now, for the analysis phase, we actually have a committee that's uh, chaired by Justin Lynn Blatteau at the Broad Institute and the University of Uppsala in Sweden that deals specifically with standardization of analysis. And so analysis can extend beyond, um, you know, beyond just the uh, assembly and annotation, but will have very specific uh, questions that will be dealt with um, by a specific project. So there are, there are thousands uh, of analyses tools to, to explore to explore genomes, and each of those uh, is employed by by different communities who are asking different questions. So you can only standardize to a certain degree. And the basic tool that one of the basic tools that we're using post assembly is called alignment. So that's the fundamental tool that everyone will use first in the comparison of genomes across species is to align all those genomes. And that's a really complicated computational problem. Uh, if you're even doing even the greatest uh, labs today, uh, the most productive labs can only align a few hundred genomes at a time. And um, and and the the group at University of California Santa Cruz, which is headed by Benedict Patton, has developed what are called reference-free genome alignments um, now, which individual genomes, once you have this framework of a few hundred genomes, you can easily add individual genomes to it. And, and so that alignment is a really important tool to do comparative genomics and to try and understand um, the different adaptations, for example, that may have occurred along the different uh, lineages of eukaryotes. So it's a complicated problem, but really the answer depends on what question you're asking. Yeah. Let's uh, bring in Judy in Oakland. Welcome. Hello. Yeah. Um, I, my question is just what about epigenetics? I don't know very much about all of this, but I know that, that the genome or the uh, chromosomes and what have you can change almost instantaneously sometimes. Yes, it's a really interesting question, Judy. I mean, to the extent, and maybe, um, Harris, let's, let's come back to you on this one. I, uh, what do you think we're not capturing by capturing genomes, and what do you think we are capturing, we are able to, to say about organisms um, just looking at this genetic material? Yeah. So no, again, we talked about epigenetics uh, a little earlier. I don't know if the listener heard uh, the discussion, but the epigenetic modifications are, are certainly part 
of the genome. Some of them may even be inherited. Some of them are erased at the stage of forming of the gametes. Now, the listener said the genome can be changed and modified. It's not true that the, the genes themselves or the DNA can be swapped in and out. What happens is a chemical modification. Sometimes we call it methylation or acetylation, different chemical modifications of different bases in the DNA. Now, we uh, at the Earth Biogenome Project, the methods we are using today can capture those changes. Um, the technology that we're using, I won't mention the, the company, but both um, of the major methods that we use for generating long reach can cap capture epigenetic uh, information, uh, chemical modifications of the DNA. Mm -hmm. So the information is going to be there. And, um, you know, uh, at a certain point, we will organize ourselves to, to appropriately capture that information as well. At the moment, um, we have not been doing so, but we plan on doing so in the future. Um, we have a question uh, from Roger, and Matt, I think I'm going to send this one to you, which is, how is this project being funded? Um, each individual sub-network, like the um, like Vertebrate Genome Lab, for instance, um, or Vertebrate Genome Project, they each have their own funding. Uh, it could be from government grants or from foundations, and they're kind of pooling the resources. Each is working on its own project or its own uh, aspect of the project. Um, there's no single funding source for the overall Earth Biogenome Project. Um, so it would be great if someone could come along and say, okay, here's a couple billion dollars, <laughs> solve all your problems. Um, yeah. Just, you know, one one visionary leader or one government grant. Uh, or you know, someone to say, okay, this is a, a project on the scale of uh, like a particle accelerator or a space telescope, and it's you know just as important. And here, let's just take care of it. Yeah, um, Harris. Anyone emailed you recently and <laughs> offering a couple billion dollars well, to, to solve well, all the problems? Um, not, 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 uh, not today. But uh, we have been talking to a number of donors over the years. We have some private foundations. Uh, the Manel Foundation funds uh, some of the infrastructure for the Secretariat for the organizational activities uh, of the EBP. Uh, the Wellcome Trust in England is really the largest funder of the Earth Biogenome Project today. And uh, as we achieve more successes, as Matt said uh, earlier, we've hit uh, 1,800 genomes uh, by the end of the year. We'll probably we're easily go we're going to be approaching 3,000 uh, genomes. There were a third of the way there to phase one, and the 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 project is really uh, move has moved through its its pilot phase into production phase. And we are demonstrating, you know, uh, every day that this project is real, uh, it's working, and it's providing answers to critical biological questions, and also uh, yielding important applications. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we are looking. If you're out there listening, driving in in on on one of the California freeways, and you'd like to support the Earth Biogenome Project, there are numerous ways to do it. Uh, uh, individuals can can contribute, uh, but um, we are also very actively seeking 
sources of government funds. Not that the uh, U.S. doesn't fund it like the other countries. It's just that it's kind of balkanized. Uh, mm -hmm. Department of Energy has a big effort. Uh, Department uh, and National Institutes of Health funds model organisms. USDA funds things you can eat or that eat things that you can eat like insect pests and and so on right. uh but uh we we really need more funds now that we're moving into production phase for this coordination across all of the projects so that by the end of it uh we really have something that is lasting is perpetual and will be the foundation for um for the biology of the future city Baez uh work on the vertebrate genome project at the rockefeller university and also chair of the justice equity diversity and inclusion committee for earth biogenome project i wanted to ask you like what is the thing you're most excited about that could come out of this massive collaboration ah. <laughs> well there's so many i think i think it's it's really going to be incredible because you know, to highlight one of the things that EBP is really doing is this is a tool, this encyclopedia, encyclopedia of life, right? This library of life. So many others will be able to use this information and it'll be incredible to see what becomes. There's going to be things coming out of this, I think, that we can't even imagine. But I do want to highlight from the justice, equity, diversity and inclusion perspective, when we think about what this project and outcome that is is going to come out of it is I really think is changing the culture of how we think about science because it's such a global and encompassing project touching every single individual, every single ecosystem, every single aspect of how we approach it, things are going to change. And as the leader of sort of all of this network, we're being so intentional about how we approach it and really trying to think about carefully, how do we involve everybody and how will everyone benefit from it? And I think that's maybe not something that will be as tangible to count, such as, yes, we sequenced all life on earth, but <laughs> we've already seen how our approach and our attention is changing the way that we think about science. And I think that that cannot be highlighted enough. Yeah, that's awesome. And um, Brad Schaefer, if people want to get involved with your particular piece of this project here in California, California Conservation Genomics Project, it's running through all the UCs, right? But are there things that anyone can do to get involved, say they want to go collect some specimens? Absolutely. Um, we, are, we are at a pretty mature phase of at least our first phase of the CCGP. Uh, so we have most of our uh, of our samples in hand, um, but there are, uh, again, permits and everything else in California, just like the rest of the world are a big issue, but there are certainly things, uh, collections that people can make. We're always looking for additional funding. Uh, we've been funded by the state of California, uh, but uh, for our next phase, we're looking for additional work and additional funding. And the best way to do that is Google up CCGP. We mm -hmm. come up first on the list. Uh, <laughs> see me. Yeah. Shoot me an email. Give me a phone call. And let's talk. Great. We've been talking about the Earth Biogenome Project, which aims to sequence the genomes of 1.8 million species. We've been joined by Brad Schaefer, 
director of the UCLA LaCrette Center for California Conservation Science, Harris Lewin, chair of the Earth Biogenome Project Executive Committee, and professor at UC Davis, Sadie Pius, chair of the Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Committee for the Earth Biogenome Project, who also works on the Vertebrate Genome Project at the Rockefeller University, and Matt Hudson, whose story, The Race to Save the World's DNA in the New Yorker, inspired this show. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with guest host Grace Wan. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.